When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Metal Mike here, and welcome to Hair Mania on the 80s Glam Metal Cast. We talk in depth about the genre and the book, The Spectacular Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal, with its author, Christopher Hilton. Here's what we talk about. Motley Crue's Theater of Pain. Is it one of their worst albums, or was it the blueprint that hair bands use in the 80s to be successful? The importance of albums that came out in the key years, 1986 and 1989. We also talk about how some of the era's biggest albums, like Appetite for Destruction, Look What the Cat Dragged In, and Hysteria took nearly a year to really break big. At the end, play along with Chris and I as we go head-to-head in hair metal trivia. See who gets crowned to be the ultimate hair metal nerd. There's so many hair metal factoids revealed, it'll blow your mind. Check it out. Well, Chris, welcome to the 80s Glam Model Cast. How you doing tonight, man? I'm fine, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, man. Glad that you could come on. Well, let's talk about the book, man. Your book is The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal. Man, this book's awesome. It's very thorough. Uh, what kind of research went into putting something like this together? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, quite a bit and not quite a bit at the same time. Um one of the things I wanted to make sure about the book was that it actually wasn't written from the standpoint of a, a researcher. Right? I didn't want it to be something where, you know, people could just get from the book what they got on Wikipedia. Uh, you know, any researcher could do that and recount what happened. I really wanted it to be told from a fan's point of view. Right? I wanted to offer something more than what just happened from a fact standpoint and offer some opinions around it, even though, you know, opinions may be the, the scourge of fact-based biographies. Uh, but as far as research, you know, I was lucky being such a Uber fan, you know, most of this stuff uh, has been intimately bouncing around in my head for decades now. Uh, you know, it's simply a matter of each year looking at the, among the 2000 CDs up in the den, uh, what music was released and, and trying to remember the stories about it and re-listening to the albums and going through some old magazines and pulling out some, some quotes and some stories that I thought would be of good interest. Um, so really it was just a brain dump of everything that's been going on for the last, I guess, 30 years in the genre. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You just mentioned the quotes. Yeah, how did you find all those quotes? I mean, you're digging through old metal edges. How are you finding all these quotes? Well, you know, my brain's kind of funny. It seems like I don't remember much stuff other than hair metal stories and quotes. Blessed <laughs> 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 kind of and, and cursed at the same time. Uh, so, you know, as I was thinking about each album, I would remember back in, Gosh, I've probably read every issue of, uh, you know, Metal Edge, Hit Parader, and all those magazines back in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, each morning, the first thing I do, because I'm crazy, is wake up and, you know, read all the hair metal blogs, websites. Uh, so it was really a matter of saying, hey, I remember this guy saying this or that, or this band saying that, or I remember reading this. Uh, but then I did have to go back and kind of type those words in and get the exact quote, because I didn't want to misquote anybody. Uh, but since I always find reading about this so interesting, uh, most of the quotes I would remember, especially when I was looking at a song or how an album got made or what an artist was going through or a band that had a breakup or a reunion or something like that, I always seem to remember what was going on and what they said, so I just had to make sure I quoted it properly. Now, 
right toward the beginning of the book, you talk about hair metal. And I love how you broke down the term uh, that you didn't necessarily agree with the term, but you realize that this is pretty much, you know, what this movement is known as, known as now. And, you know, I grew up on it too. I think you and I are about the same age. And uh, I, I just, I embrace it, you know, the hair metal thing. It's like... Uh, I look back and some people say 80s rock. Well, to me, like 80s rock is Huey Lewis and 80s metal could be Priest or Dio. So, you know, there's so many things that like, where does this fit? And I think now I think just hair metal sums it up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a polarizing term for sure, right? There's been many a heated debate discussion anytime it gets brought up among anyone who considers themselves even remotely a fan of the genre. Uh, you know, the, the first sentence in the first chapter of the book, as, as I'm sure you've seen, says, I have a confession to make. I hate the term hair metal, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is true. Why in the world would I, you know, use it as the title of the book? Um, and it's really for what you said. I was looking for a, a universal identifier of the type of music within, just to be clear to the audience. Uh, I could have used the term glam metal, but then maybe people would have thought the book was about uh, David Bowie or Alice Cooper or New York Doll. And I'm not sure that's so much better, right? Glam is glamour, is fashion, you know, is hair, perhaps. Uh, I could have used heavy metal, which is exactly what this stuff was referred to in the 80s. I mean, yep. People are surprised that weren't around during that time. Uh, the term hair metal wasn't even invented until years after the genre's right, heyday. Right. Uh, you know, maybe the early to mid-90s. Uh, believe it or not, you know, back in 1987, poison was heavy metal. Everything yep. was heavy metal. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it, hair metal wasn't invented as a term until really after grunge when people needed a more disparaging, pejorative term. Uh, hair metal implying that the genre was incredible or about the music and it was all about hair and style and no substance and you know bands and fans we hated it uh, because for the most part it just wasn't true uh, you know some of these most of these were highly skilled musicians and the music was in general much harder to play and sing than grunge uh, you know even take a band like Poison or take the guitarist C.C. DeVille you know kind of a, a signature goofball you know and, and hair metal hair metal poster boys uh, but C.C. DeVille trained them to the great Effect Perlman, right? Or, or bands like Winger. These are classically trained musicians. Yep. Um, so, you know, it can generate a, a lot of discussion. But at the end of the day, I kind of cringe. But I said, hey, if I want people to know exactly what this book is about, for better or worse, when people say hair metal, you generally know what you're going to get, right? You're going to yeah. get Motley Crue, Poison, yep. Guns Roses, Skid Row, Warrant Rat, all these bands. And, you know, apologies to these bands because, you know, I've somewhat grown to acquiesce the fact that the term is it's less of a derogative term these days. It's more of a, a happily nostalgic term for yeah. many, and we just use it as a convenience. But, you know, the bands have not necessarily reached that same place, and I don't blame them. Yeah, right. uh, you know, if you say hair metal to Sebastian Bach, you know, he's likely to try and rip your stomach out through your throat, <laughs> or and many of the others. So I get that. Uh, so again, apologies to them, but for better or worse, it, it was a universal identifier, and you know, I, I choose to view it as something uh, that is not its derogative intention. Well, I got to say, man, I kind of went into this book a little bit cocky thinking like, you know, I know all this stuff. I, w I was there through all of it. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff in this book that I did not know. I won't reveal what the things are. I'll let the people buy the book and find out what they are. But tell you, you uncovered a lot of cool facts. Yeah, you know, it's, like I said, it's just the, the benefit of being such a fan, right? I mean, this is... Again, call me crazy, but this is what I've immersed myself in uh, as a hobby for the, well, I guess, ever since the, the early 80s. Uh, so, you know, if it's what you do, you tend to pick up a lot of things along the way. You know, and there's things in this thing, in the book, 
that you kind of forget about as the years go on. And one thing that you touch on for a couple different bands is how it was a slow rise to success, especially with GNR and Poison. And I think sometimes you, you take that for granted. You think of these guys were right out of the gate really huge, but probably with both of those albums, albums almost took a year for them to really take off, which I, I kind of forgot that, you know? Yeah, you know, it's kind of revisionist history sometimes. People take an album, you mentioned Guns Rez, with like Appetite for Destruction, uh, you know, the biggest selling debut album of all time, and they, I think, okay, this must have came out, and then Welcome to the Jungle was on the radio, and it was a huge hit. And you're right, uh, that's not what happened by any stretch of the imagination. And it, it was a different time, right? I mean, now, if a group comes out and gets marketed, you know, if, if you don't have a hit right away, it's not like the record company is investing in you. Uh, you know, back in the 80s, you know, bands would get two or three albums to establish an audience and a platform to get developed. Um, and it was, it was different. But, yeah, Appetite for Destruction was probably a full year before it hit. Um, you know, bizarrely, you know, the first single was It's So Easy, which was a strange choice because, uh, you know, as far as actual vocal register, you know, singing that very low register, which is not... Uh, indicative of the rest of the album. Uh, the band spent a ton of money on a video that was so graphic that MTV, of course, banned it. Uh, you know, the song's full of uh, fairly offensive language, so the radio wouldn't play it. But <laughs> on some note, you have to question the decision. Uh, but Appetite for Destruction, the record company had basically given up on that record until the manager took, you know, one, called him one last favor and begged MTV to play the video for Welcome to the Jungle just once. And, and they agreed reluctantly uh, it played, I think, at, at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. I don't remember. It was one of those on a Sunday morning, no less. And as it turned out, people were watching. Uh, you know, according to MTV's, uh, you know, stories or logs or whatever, uh, the switchboard just lit up. And that was what caused the album to take off. But, uh, you know, it almost got overlooked. The record company actually wanted them to go back in and start on a second album, and they were ready to give up. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Um, the same thing with Hysteria, right? How many singles from Hysteria was released before Pour Some Sugar on Me hit? That was almost another full year. Uh, you know, Women was released as a single, didn't do anything, uh, even though they probably should have released Animal as the first signal like yeah. they did in, in the UK. Uh, then they wised up and released Animal. It did nothing. Uh, it wasn't until the, the B-side of uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me was errantly played by a radio station, and, and that made the album take off. Yeah, it's funny. The record companies get it wrong a lot. And in doing the podcast and talking to all these guys, you'll hear a lot of different stories about that where the label you know, wants to do this one, do that one, and then they're ready to give up. Uh, one that comes to mind when you were talking and made me remember it was Kicks. Um, with Blow My Fuse. They put out, I think, three singles, and they pretty much were done with the album. And I think it was Guns N' Roses' manager that uh, really pushed for uh, Alan Niven, pushed for um, Don't Close Your Eyes to be released. And they listened to him because it was Guns N' Roses' manager. I think it was also Great White's manager. And, uh, you know, and that was, and, that, and it blew up. You know what I mean? So here it is that, once again, the label's ready to give up on these guys, but here's this awesome hit that they're kind of overlooking. And, and this, like I said, we've all read these stories, heard these stories a million times. The Record companies get it wrong a lot. Yeah, Kix was actually on tour with Great White uh, when Alan Nevin heard that song. And he said, oh my God, it happened to be uh, a friend of the record company called him and I said, hey, you guys have a massive hit on your hands here if you would just take a look at it. Uh, but you're right, he doesn't make that phone call and, and that's probably it, right? And, and people don't know Kix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I know, it's crazy. There's a section uh, in the book about Theater of Pain. In your opinion, how, how important is that album for Motley Crue and for the, the genre entirely? Well, 
uh, I'm not going to make a lot of fans here <laughs> because the fear of pain. Um, I guess if you ask a hundred Motley Crue fans um, outside of you know Generation Swine or anything they did in the late '90s or after that, uh, the majority of them are probably going to say that's Motley Crue's worst album. Uh, even Nikki Six will say that the Motley Crue's worst album, and it was created under some difficult times. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Vince with his, his jail sentence yep. and, and trying to get sober and coming off the accident. Uh, and Nikki was beginning to, to suffer from the heroin addiction. Uh, you know, the songs uh, perhaps weren't there as they were with Shout of the Devil or a really innovative album like Too Fast for Love. Um, so it doesn't really catch a lot of, uh, of fan enthusiasm, uh, not to mention that the two hit singles from it are, are kind of anomalous to everything else in the album. Yeah. Uh, Smoking in the Boys Room, a cover of the Brownfield Station song, it isn't really, you know, what you would think Motley Crue. And then Home Sweet Home, the ballad at the time, power ballads weren't popular, uh, really until after Home Sweet Home. Right, 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 right. So, uh, you know, not a lot of Motley Crue fans are really enthusiastic about that album, but I like it. I like it a lot. Not necessarily because I recognize it as some amazing, you know, piece of orchestration or songwriting, uh, but it was one of the first uh, albums I had heard from the era, so it will always hold a, a special place for me. And I think if you take it for just what it was, right, just a, you know, bare bones, uh, you know, nuts and bolts, rock and roll album, uh, you know, I think it's got a lot to offer uh, as far as the guitar tone and the, the nastiness of some of the songs. But I'm alone in that, I promise you. You won't find many people that agree with me. And oh, I get where they're oh, coming from. Oh, oh. I know somebody's going to agree with you, me, because that's also one of my ah. first, first purchases uh, for, for the, this genre, the hair metal genre. And I really think this created the mold, which a lot of bands copied after with the with the videos. You know, obviously everybody wanted to do that tour, uh, you know, ballad video, all that kind of stuff. That I feel like they really, with the look, this is when I feel like bands started copying whatever Motley Crue was doing image-wise, starting here and then all the way to Dr. Feelgood. So I think this was kind of like beginning of their reign as one of the top hair metal bands. Uh, I love the album, too. And once again, I get it. There are some weak songs, but this is, uh, for me, it's got great deep tracks. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the deep tracks, and I especially love... Like use it or lose it, fight for your rights, and save our souls. I like songs like that. So, dude, I love that album. So I'm with you. Yeah, uh, you know, I skip smoking in the boys room. I admit, uh, I like yeah, the me too. Track as well, I mean, commercially, it was huge for them. Right? Yeah. I mean, it it saved their career. You know, they without the the hit singles on that record, you know, their career could have been over. To be honest, I mean, smoking in the boys room uh, allowed them to be on MTV and allowed them to get in people's living room and, and expand their audience. And, and then Home Sweet Home, of course. Uh, largely brought the female into the equation. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, so even two hit singles saved their career. And as far as trends and people copying, I mean, Motley Crue was kind of unique in that they changed their image, at least during the 80s, for every album. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, and, and Theater of Pain, people saw the sellout because they were used to the, the nastiness of Shadow of the Devil and the leather, and then all of a sudden the guys are wearing pink pants yep. and, and makeup. And then on Girls, 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 of course, they ditched all that for the, the motorcycles and the leather jackets and strip clubs. And then Dr. Philgood was a different step in another direction. Uh, but commercially, yeah, it was huge for them. Yeah. And you know, when I, I and once again, you, you might know the timeline better than, than I do, but I look at it like Theater of Pain came out, right? And then all of a sudden, Dokken looked exactly like that. Uh, Kiss looked exactly like, you know what I mean? So I feel like... Um, Every time Crew did one of these things, I, I feel like so many other bands followed, image-wise. Oh, absolutely. I think, indeed, they were trendsetters, uh, at least in the 80s. 
uh, you know, they, they might not have <laughs> carried that through throughout the rest of their career. No. But, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Nikki Six was setting the trends back then. Yeah. I think so too. And '86, if we talk about that for a minute, is just a huge year. I mean, you think you got the debut of Poison, you've got Europe Final Countdown, Bon Jovi, Slippery One, What Night Songs, Eat 'Em and Smile. And, and, and this was, like I said, this was my year. It sounds like it was your year too. Um, I, this is the year I'm getting into the albums that were probably released in '85 and in '86. So, I mean, a lot to consume at this point. Oh, absolutely. '86 was really the year. You know, the hair metal truly broke through as a commercial force. Yep. I mean, there were albums before that, certainly. Uh, you know, there was Quiet Rise, Metal Health, and, and Come On, Feel the Noise. That was the first number one heavy metal album. You know, that uh, it knocked the police's synchronicity out of the number one spot of all things. And, of course, Van Halen had been there since 78. Uh, Rat was all over MTV with Round and Round in 84, and Twisted Sister had the big videos, the commercial big videos earlier than that. And, of course, Stockton was there and, and Pyromania. But in 86... It was slippery when wet. Yep. And that was it, right? I mean, 12 million copies, and, you know, Bon Jovi had the full female audience. They had the, the male audience. Uh, they had Living on a Prayer. They had Wanted Dead or Alive. Uh, that was it. After that album, uh, there was no stopping hair metal or heavy metal at the time from being a, a truly dominant force. And, of course, Poison had their debut, and Cinderella, and to your point, David Lee Roth had his solo record, and, and Van Halen's 5150, you know, somehow they were bigger than ever, ever. And from there, you know, 87 all the way up to 1990, uh, this was a commercially and culturally dominant thing. Yeah. No way around it. You know, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about 1989. And I think this is probably my favorite year of, uh, of the 80s for music because I feel like this is the peak. Uh, it's also the beginning of the end. But, but, but I think it's, I mean, we could go through a few of them. But, man, I think this is a great year for, uh, for Hair Model. Yeah, you know, it sounds like we have very similar tastes. It's probably my favorite year as well. And I, I think it was the peak before the genre started to become a little saturated, uh, a little duplicative, uh, a little copycatish. But there were some huge records. Uh, there was Molly Crew hit their commercial peak with Dr. Feelgood. Uh, there were some, some great new bands on the scene. Skid Row and Warren were basically overnight sensations. Yeah, great uh, albums. Whitesnake uh, had Flip of the Punk. Even Aerosmith was in the peak of their comeback with the Pump album. And then there was tons of do bands, right? You you couldn't sneeze and not hit a hair metal album. Tango, <laughs> Britney Fox, Danger Danger, Extreme, uh, you know, and not all these bands necessarily fit the hair metal mold uh, when they talk about brands like Extreme or, Dan- or, or Bang Tango, but they were certainly all marketed as such. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm going to go over a few that you touch on in the book because these are these are ones where once I saw these albums pop up, I got very excited because I like these albums a lot. So the first one that I got excited about was Slip of the Tongue. A lot of people don't talk highly always of Slip of the Tongue, but I love I love Steve I's, uh presence on that album. I love when he kind of gets reeled in because we know Steve I was with Zappa. You know, he can get kind of out there, but um, when he reels it in, and, and comes into the hard rock uh, arena. I just feel like it, it works because it's it's still it's still out there and unique, but it it fits with you know David Lee Roth or White Snake. So I I love Slip of the Tongue. I love it. Yeah, we're not in the majority there again. Kind of <laughs> no, with we're not. And pain. Uh, you know, the, the true White Snake fans. I mean, they could barely tolerate 1987, right? Uh, because uh, you know, before that, of course, White Snake was more, especially in the 70s and early 80s, more of just a, a rock and roll blues band. And then uh, with Slide It In, they started to, to venture into what we call that hair metal style. And, of course, by the 1987 self-titled album, 
you know, it was full-blown hair metal, no doubt about it. And, you know, a lot of people saw that as white snake selling out. Of course, that's also when they attracted their, their large majority of fans. Oh, yeah. Um, but when people heard Slip of the Tongue, for most of them, you know, that was just too far in the other direction. Uh, it was full-blown pyrotechnics, you know, overblown production, you know, singing the highest register you possibly can, get the biggest, longest guitar solos. Um, and so people didn't like what they thought was the legitimacy or the authenticity of that. Personally, to your point, I liked it. I thought Steve Vai brought mm-hmm. a lot to that album. People didn't see him as a good fit necessarily for White Snake because he was really on that, that flashy side and that, you know, uh, there, there can't be too much in the guitar playing, whereas the, the White Snake fans were coming from a different place in a lot of ways, from just a general blues-based type of, of rhythm. Uh, but I thought Steve brought a lot to that record. Granted, it's an exception in the White Snake catalog. There's, there's nothing else exactly like that. Uh, you know, by the time they hit Restless Heart, uh, a few years later, it was back to more of that really blues rock. Um, but I enjoy listening to it. I enjoyed it then. I enjoy it now. Another one that I really love that you touch on is, um, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, Leather Boys with Electric Toys. And I feel like that album has aged so well. I, I definitely enjoyed it a lot when I was younger when it came out. But, man, something about over the years, I just think I like it now more than ever. I just think that's a great hair metal album. Incredible. It's definitely my favorite guilty pleasure. <laughs> Pretty Boy Floyd is, you know, you either love them or, or you don't. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Uh, for me, I love them. I just love the style. I love what they're going for. Uh, a lot of people are going to look at that album cover, and, and they're never going to listen to it. Yep. <laughs> Even at the time, that album cover probably was a little, a little not so great. Uh, but I just love them to death. Uh, I've seen Pretty Boy Floyd in concert more times than I could count, and if I could see one band tomorrow, it would probably be them, uh, because I just think they're a lot of fun, and I love the melodies and the music. And, and Steve Summers, for me, is the voice of glam metal, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, oh, but yeah. again, I understand for, for some, his voice can be an acquired taste, but... I mean, I think he's terrific, and I think what they do is fantastic for what they're aiming to do. I love the record. Another one that, that I was so excited to see covered was Boys in Heat, Britney Fox, because in my opinion, this is a superior album compared to the debut. And it's funny, I interviewed Johnny D, and he wasn't a big fan of this album, the drummer of Britney Fox. He, he thought the album title was goofy. He didn't like the sound of the drums. He thought there was too many songs. But you know what? I freaking love that album. <laughs> it was a long album. There was a lot of songs. And, and yeah, the, the debut sold better, for sure. But to your earlier point, uh, that was when albums, even though a lot of bands, sophomore albums, I thought, were jump-up in quality, that was when they started you know, to have the sales drop off. Uh, so even though um, that album or take an album at the same time started like Danger, Danger, Screw It, I thought that was an improvement over their debut. They weren't matching the sale just because the genre w- was on its way to the other side. Uh, but I do enjoy that as well. I got to admit, I'm, I'm probably preferential uh, to to bite down hard. Yeah, bite down hard is good too. And that's Dean had left. Yep. And that's where you know I think once we get to 91, 92, 93, um, I I think I started to realize as I'm reading the book like how much I love some of those later era hair metal albums. Maybe even better than the ba- the ones they did you know four or five years earlier. I love. Uh, like you said, Bite Down Hard, Dog Eat Dog, Main Attraction. 
Uh, hope if, you know, if these hair metal fans don't know what, what bands we're talking about, then they're not true fans. They should just shut off the podcast. Uh, Exposed, Native Tongue, Coverdale Page, Psycho Schizophrenia. Uh, those are kick-ass albums. And I think some, not all the ones that I mentioned, but some of them show where the genre could have went if record companies were still going to support this because these guys were evolving. Uh, Winger Pole, that's another one too. But these these guys were evolving and, and really taking it to a, a cool direction, but unfortunately, it just wasn't being, uh, you know, what's, I guess nurtured is the only thing I could think of. Nobody was supporting this uh, genre anymore. Yeah, the window was closed, no doubt about it, when, when Grunge hit. But you're right, a lot of those albums in the early 90s were, were some of the band's best work. Uh, a lot of people will, will tell you that Dog Eat Dog is Lawrence's best album. Yep. Uh, and I think it has a lot going for it in terms of musicianship and, and songwriting. Uh, personally, you know, I did prefer the style, the more hair metal style of the first two records. Yeah. But I certainly recognized, you know, what they were doing on Dog Eat Dog. Uh, Pole is, is, you know, probably unquestionably Winger's best album. Uh, Native Tongue offered a lot in terms of, you know, real bluesy songwriting. Um, what else was that? Vicious Circle. I only got the Vicious Circle oh, album in 94, right? Love that, that was one. a powerful album. Love it. Oh, I got one beef with you though, because I gotta, I gotta ask you. Okay. One of my favorite bands is Kiss. There's not a lot of Kiss in this. Why is there not much Kiss in this book? <laughs> How can there not be Kiss in this book, right? What, what is wrong? What is the problem? <laughs> I think I know the answer, but I'll, I'll want to hear it from you. Well, uh, first thing I gotta tell you is the first draft of this book, believe it or not, was about 800 pages. <laughs> okay, <all right. laughs> long, very long. From the very it was 800 pages. I was intent to make this the comprehensive Bible about air metal. And then I sat down and I said, oh my God, no one's gonna, not even the most ardent fan is going to want to read 800 pages about air metal. And, and so thus began the very long process of cutting out a whole lot of it. And it was torturous because, you know, a lot of these bands that I had to cut the coverage back or even some of it, you know, I love these bands. Um, and difficult decisions had to be made. So what I really tried to do was focus on when people think about hair metal, they generally think about bands that originated in the 80s. Yeah. So with the exception yeah. of maybe Aerosmith or, or, or Van Halen, who, you know, neither of them fit the hair metal mold uh, very well anyway. Uh, but, you know, Kiss, they started in 1973. There was the prominence in the mid to late 70s. Uh, and no doubt about it, a lot of the hair metal template, the fashion, the party songs, the melodic hard rock, the guitar riffs, the showmanship, that comes from Kiss. Yep. And if you ask any hair metal band, they're going to tell you Kiss, or 19 out of 20 of them are going to tell you Kiss are their era. Um, and that's not to say Kiss didn't evolve to more of the hair metal standard in the 80s. Right? They put the makeup off in 83. They did lick it up. And if, if you listen to songs like Heaven's on Fire or Tears Are Falling or a Crazy Crazy Night, this is hair metal. Oh, a 1989 Hot in the Shade album at the peak of the genre uh, with the power ballads forever or the anthem like uh, Warren sounding like Rise to it. Um, these are hair metal songs. Uh, so apologies. <laughs> the, the kids don't get a lot of press in the book. They certainly get their, their necessary call out as, you know, forefathers and influences of the genre. Yeah. Uh, but I've tried to keep it focused on those bands that, that really emerged in the eighth. That makes sense, Chris. And, you know, I the, the thing that I thought of is that these albums are covered very heavily in a lot of different books that are out there. So it probably, like you said, probably wasn't really necessary to, to, to get too deep into Kiss because there's whole books dedicated to Kiss. Tons of books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got any plans to write another book at, at some point? <laughs> you know, a couple of people have asked me that question. Um, and because there's so much material I had to cut out, you know, I would love to do more writing about it, uh, especially the years after 2000. Right? Because then once we got 
you know, the rise in the 80s, the fall in the 90s, and a legitimate uh, type of rebirth at the, the turn of the century, uh, that was really the story arc of the book. And then I think I took the last 50 or so pages, maybe 70 pages, to talk about, you know, what these bands have been doing since the year 2002 all the way up to 2019, and some of the new wave of hair metal, especially the, the bands from overseas that have emerged in the, the last decade or so. Uh, but uh, it was only 70 pages. I could have read another 400 pages on those bands. Um, and maybe I'd love to tell people about that, assuming people would want to hear it. But no, I have no plans to write a sequel outside of overwhelming demand for one, which I don't think is going to be the case. <laughs> well, you never know, man. Well, hey, we, uh, we were talking a little bit before uh, we did this interview, and, and we, we thought it was a cool idea to maybe do a little bit of trivia against each other. You're probably going to smoke me because you did all this research and you wrote a book. So, um why don't we start it off? Why, why don't you go first? You're, you're my guest. You go first. Hit me with your trivia question. We'll just go every other, and uh, you know we'll see how we do. Okay. Hey, it sounds like fun. I had fun thinking about this. I was actually walking the dog this morning and thinking what I could come up with that would uh, hopefully be answerable, but still might you know provide the audience with a few decent anecdotes. Uh, let's try and start off with an easy one. All, All right. right. Sounds let's good. Talk about. I hope it's an easy one. <laughs> I want to make you look good. Don't make me look bad on my podcast. Well, you've read, the, you've read the book, or at least some of it, but some of these are in the book. So okay. If you read closely, you'll, you'll be good to go. Okay. Study it up. Um, talk about uh, a band called Heaven's Edge. Yeah. And I see that you had the lead singer Mark Evans on your show uh, back in May. I can't wait to listen to it. I just saw that today. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the band. Uh, love their debut. Uh, what most people don't know is that outside of their debut in 1990, Heaven's Edge actually had mostly a full second album, very polished demos in the can around 1992. But with the advent of grunge and other things that wasn't fully finished and released until 1998, what was the name of that second album? Oh, I, I should know this. And you know, it was funny because we talked about this on the podcast, and I think they were initially picked up by Capitol Records, um, and, but then with the grunge and everything, it fell through. And and I know, you know what? I can't think of what it is. So you got me. What is it? <laughs> It's on the tip of your tongue, I'm sure. It's some other place, some other time. Some other place, some other time. I knew it was it was like a, a lot of words, but I could not place what it is. Okay. You're, you got me. You're winning. Okay. All right. Well, I'm a... I don't, I don't want to win this. <laughs> it's, it's totally fine. Okay. So... I'm a big Lillian Axe nut, and everybody who listens to my podcast or follows me on Twitter, I'm always talking about Lillian Axe. So what famous rocker produced Lillian Axe's debut album? Boy, you know, I like Lillian Axe, too. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Psycho Schizophrenia album. Oh, me too. Uh, and, of course, of course, Love and War. Love and War is a classic. Amazing. But the debut, I don't know. That was Robin Crosby. I don't think I ever knew that. Is that true? Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of ties. I think they were managed by the same management that, that managed Rat, and that's how that relationship came in. But, yeah, yeah, they were definitely uh, – Yeah, if you've got that album, uh, check it out. It's uh, Robin Crosby. I will, yes. Hey, that was a good one. Okay. Nice. Very All right. nice. All right, man. You're up, Chris. Okay. So the name Tony Katane rings a bell with you, correct? Yes. Of course. Uh, who could forget, uh, you know, the famous model appeared in – Several white snake videos in the late eighties, uh, including "Still of the Night," "Is This Love," "Deep of the Love," uh, "Full for Your Loving," and the famous "Here I Go Again." Right? This was the woman for those listening. If you don't know, that was doing the splits on the hood of the Jaguar in the "Here I Go Again" video. So any any teenage male that grew up on hair metal in the eighties knows Tony Katane. She was actually briefly even married to, to white snake lead this white snake lead singer David Coverdale. But some fans may be surprised to know that these weren't her first appearances in popular hair metal videos. 
What was the first hair metal video she appeared in? I don't know if it's the first, but she's in Rats Back for More. Ah, wonderful. Very ah. impressive. Ha <laughs> <laughs> I got one, finally. Very, uh, there's a bonus part to that question. Okay. What was her, what was her real name? Oh, that I don't know. I actually didn't know that either until today. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's Julie Katane. Oh, okay. I did not so know that. People know I have no I have no obsession with Pony Katane. I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. <laughs> that is good. Well, I'm glad I finally got one. Okay, so here's one. You like Pretty Boy Floyd? Who was the original yeah. Pretty Boy Floyd guitarist? who was out of the band once the debut came out, but he was back in the band in 1991. Do you know who this guy is? Is that Ariel Styles? Ariel Styles, Nice, Chris. That, that's a rare one. Good job, man. Good job. Well, he, he wrote all the songs. He did write all the songs, yep. A lot of people probably don't know that. So Yeah, in fact, you're familiar with the band uh, Shameless, correct? Yes. So Shameless is, is still putting songs in the records that, that Styles wrote. <laughs> no kidding. I like, dude. I'm trying to find that guy. I'd love to have him on the podcast, but he's I don't know where the hell he is. He's he's hard to find. He's underground, but uh, certainly a talented songwriter for sure. Yep. What else you got? Okay. So good. At least I got one. If I miss all the others, I'll have that. I can sleep <laughs> we're, we're one for one. We're tied. I like it. Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk about Van Halen. Oh, or boy. more specifically, David Lee Roth. Okay. So David Lee Roth split with Van Halen. After issuing his platinum selling uh, cover song Solo VT in 1985, and then of course he immediately begun work on his movie project, which was to be a musical with him starring in the lead role. Uh, CBS Films had actually greenlit the movie with a 20 million dollar budget, and it was more than 90 percent complete when it was suddenly scrapped at the 11th hour due to a consolidation of CBS Studios. Now, of course, the songs for this movie that were going to be the soundtrack turned into Eat 'Em and Smile. And the videos, the colorful videos uh, for that album, used many of the movie's set pieces and props. What was the unreleased movie's name? Uh, was it Crazy from the Heat? It was. Wow. And that, I, as soon as you said Van Halen, I got nervous because like, I, I, I like Van Halen, but I'm not like the biggest Van Halen fan. And then when you said Roth, I'm like, okay, I like Roth a lot. <laughs> so I thought maybe I could get it. Okay, good, good. And I think, that was, I, think, I, I, think I knew that from the book. So I, I really owe the answer to you. So. <laughs> Okay, I got one for you. It's Heaven's Edge related. Now, you may not know the answer to this, but I think if you guess, you should be able to get it. So, Heaven's Edge was filming a second video uh, for their debut album, but because of grunge and everything that was going on, the plug got pulled. Any idea what that song was going to be? I think the first video was Skin to Skin, yep. if I remember right. Yep. And then I think they wanted to come out with a, a more melodic, on a pop rock tune for the second video. Uh, what was the what was the third song on that record? It was um, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, Find another way. Find that another, it? That's it, man. You got it. Ding 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 ding. That's the one they wanted. They thought that could really get some more radio play. Yeah. And yeah, unfortunately, the the record company had given up. I think they actually wanted that as the first signal. Yeah. Um, and the record company chose like the heavier, more quote-unquote heavy metal skin to skin i do remember that video but i remember mark saying uh that he wanted they really wanted to find another way yep yep now one thing that you say in your book you mentioned how there were replacement players in white lion in 1991 but you didn't mention their names you probably know their names so what are their what are their names oh i'm going again too i'm sorry you get to do two next (laughs) 
Okay, right. So I will have the noodle on that. Oh, uh, let's think. It was the two guys they had picked up for the European tour, yes. wasn't it? Um, because I think they went over with the two replacements. And I, I have read who they were. Maybe I haven't because if you said I recognize them, I probably remember. But I don't know off the top of my head. Who was it? Okay, so it was um, Jimmy DeGrasso who was in Y&T. And then it was Tommy Caradona. Uh, I think they call him like T-Bone. He was in Alice Cooper and he was in Lita Ford. Okay, DeGrasso I knew, but I didn't know the second one. Yeah, they, that didn't work out so well when no. I went over to Europe, did it? <laughs> All right, man. Well, I, I jumped in and I did two, so you, you can hit me with two. Okay. All right. So let's go to Bon Jovi. Um, legendary 1986 song, Living on a Prayer. Uh, quite possibly the, the single most enduring song from the genre's heyday for most people. Uh, famously featured the, the fictional characters Tommy and Gina. Yep. Uh, everybody knows Tommy and Gina. That couple, Tommy and Gina, were also mentioned in two subsequent Bon Jovi songs on later albums. Do you know the songs? I know they're mentioned in It's My Life, but I have no idea what other song they're mentioned in. So I get half credit. Okay. Partial credit, yes. It's My Life in 2000 definitely uh, had the lyric, uh, this is for the ones who stood their ground. It's for Tommy and Gina who never backed back down. down. Yep, yep. And they also made an appearance on 99 in the Shade from 1988's New Jersey album. Oh, Okay. Uh, see, I don't like New Jersey very much, so that's probably why I don't know that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, hit me with another one. Okay. Um, let's stick around that time frame in 19, uh, late 80s, uh, 1988, Winger. Winger released their self-titled debut album in 1988, but some people might not know that prior to that, the band originally went by another name until they changed it at the last minute at the suggestion of Alec Cooper. If you look really closely at their debut album cover, their original name is actually printed on it. What was it? Sahara. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember I read I remember I read that uh, I don't know how many years ago. I immediately went and ran to the album cover and there it was. And I, know. I never noticed it. I never noticed it either. Yeah, I, I remember reading that a long time ago and then I did the same exact thing. I'm like, bullshit, it's not on there. And then I looked and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, it is on there. But well, what are you gonna do? I think they made a good move. Winger was more distinct of a name, so it was definitely more hair metal, if you can say such a thing. So, Coverdale Page. What Coverdale Page song yeah. did Plant and Page play live in, 19, in 1995? So they took a song from that album, and they actually played it with Plant and Page. What is it? Uh, it's probably, it's got to be one of the two big ones, right? I would think, or else I'm going to fail this. I don't uh, know, man. So <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, honestly, I don't remember them playing the song, so I'm going to have to guess. Uh, I'm going to guess it's, it's it's got to be Pride and Joy, right? It's actually Shake My Tree. Oh, that was the second guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my, my favorite song on the album, yeah. Shake My Tree, for yeah, sure. Pride and Joy a cool was the bigger radio single. That was an interesting album, wasn't it? I, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I thought it, it was a unique thing. Um, you know, for me, something was just a little, you know, it was, it was exactly what you think it would be. It was an exact merging of White Snake and Led Zeppelin. Yep. Yep. But in some places, you kind of hear it and you're thinking, well, I wish the, the White Snake elements of this song would be a little more Led Zeppelin, or vice versa. Yes. And yeah. somehow they came together, but I don't know that they exactly merge. But I still like the record. And certainly, you know, it had some great musicianship and some great songs, uh, especially those two. Um, take a look at yourself, the, the, the page guitar solo and that is, you know, some of the best playing I've heard him do. Uh, same with Whisper of Prayer for the Dying. It's a great record, yep. Definitely. Um, how about we do one more? Uh, go ahead. 
Okay, let's see. One more. We'll do one more what each. What can I ask that would be... Okay. Um, let's stick with the, the big the big moments in the genre. Um, Cherry Pie. Everybody knows the song Cherry Pie. Yes. God bless it. Uh, 1990, big hit. One of the most popular and defining songs of the hair metal genre, for better or worse. Uh, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. Uh, the song opens with kind of a slow-building scream that the listener would naturally assume the vocal was lead singer Janie Lane. But it wasn't. Who was it? I got this from your book. This was one of those things I did I did not know. So, And I didn't want to say it because I don't like spoiling things. I want people to buy the book and read it themselves. But it's D. Snyder. It is D. Snyder. Now, if you ever talk to, to Bill Hill, because I never have, mm-hmm. and I've heard podcasts with him. In fact, he just did one. Uh, he just did a podcast in the, in the last couple of days. Yeah, he did. Someone yeah. needs to ask him why he chose to lift that from, from Twisted Sisters' uh, Love is for Suckers album. So now, weird. Not only is it D. Snyder, but it's, it's an exact snippet that he decided to. I mean, why did he do that? I don't know. I'd love to know someday. It is. That is crazy. That, yeah, once again, those are things I had no idea. So like I said, here I am thinking of, you know, Mr. Mr. Glam model, hair model. I know everything. But there was a lot of stuff I did not know. Okay, here we go. Last question. Oh, if, you, if you got that from the book, all right, if you got this from the book, I'll give you a bonus question related to Cherry Pie. You probably get this from the book, too. Okay, I'll give, give it to me. Who played, who played the guitar solo on Cherry Pie? Hint, it was not a member of Warren. Um, okay, well, th- I'm probably going to bone this one because I now I, I'm having trouble. I know that, well, just as a side thing, I know that somebody else played the solos on the first two albums, and I can't remember what his name was. He's like a session guy. But I want to say, did somebody from Kingdom Come play it, the solo? It was it was C.C. DeVille. Oh, C.C. DeVille. Oh, that's right. Ah, that's right. That was in the book. You're right. I do remember that. He wasn't in the video. Uh, and you're right, uh, on the first album, the, the Warren uh, guitarists did not play the solos, only because the producers thought you know, they were they were still learning their craft, and yep. they were trying to compete with the Eddie Van Halens and the Steve Vise of the time, and he said, hey, we we got to get some help here. It was actually Mike Slammer that came in. Mike Slammer, all that's the guitar solos. Yep, yep. That's right. I do remember that from the book now, and that's, that's uh, jogging my memory. Okay, here's the last one. What hair band had a song in the movie Father Like Son starring Dudley Moore in 1987? I know this too. <laughs> <But I'm not laughs> Come on, Chris, you know it. But I, I have heard that before, and I have read that before. Uh, but it's not going to come to me. I'll I'll sing a line of it. She never looked that good for me. All right, <laughs> may not be the best rendition, but ring a bell. Actually, I'm I'm impressed with your tone. Uh, that was pretty good. Uh, but I apologize; it probably didn't come through clear enough. Uh, I'm going to fail you on this one. Okay, it was autographed. Oh yes, that's true. Okay, fair enough. That was a good one. Yeah, well, dude, that was great. That isn't that great fun because we. I think we just both proved that we are hair metal nerds for sure. Oh, uh, you know, self-professed. <laughs> Actually, I'm not a hair metal nerd. I'm kind of a hair metal super nerd. So. <laughs> well, Chris, man, it was so awesome to talk with uh, with you about this book. I'm so glad that I, I got the book and I read it, and I really recommend everybody out there to read it as well. Where's the best place for somebody to get the book, Chris? Right. First of all, thank you for your interest in the book. I'm really glad uh, you like it. I can only hope that I did justice, you know, to the artist and this great genre of music. Um, the book can be picked up at Amazon, of course. Uh, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal, or you can go to my website, www.hairmetalforever.com. Awesome. 
I certainly appreciate the support, Mike. A lot of fun talking with you. Uh, let's do it again sometime. I got a bunch more trivia for you. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I'm definitely looking to shake it up. Uh, I, like I said, I did about 50 pretty straightforward episodes, and now I'm looking forward to just doing some more weird stuff. I'm trying to get let my creative brain go crazy and, and try to do some wild things. So, yeah, we'll definitely do something again, man. Thanks a lot for your time. Okay, thank you. Have a good one. Yep, take care, Chris. Well, that was a great episode with Chris. I don't know who won. Was it me? Was it him? I don't know. It was a good time. Hope you enjoyed it. Well, hey, lots of great things are going on in the 80s Glam Metal cast. Tons of new videos. Father-to-son metal reactions. Keep an eye open for the Pretty Boy Floyd reaction that's coming this week. Also, great interview with Bill Leverty from Firehouse is also on the way. There's one thing you got to do so you don't miss any of it. Subscribe. Rock on.